Shortly after 2 a.m. on January 13, 1911, people living across the rim of the picturesque Taal Lake and even beyond were awakened by a fearsome roar. The sound, a terrible noise that was described by geologist priest Reverend Miguel Sadera Maso as both subterraneous and in the air, was said to have reached as far north as Dagupan, around 240 kilometers away from the volcano. Through the dark, a titanic plume of smoke was illuminated by bolts of lightning cascading upwards from the volcano's yawning mouth. In the storm and turmoil of the superheated ash and cinders, currents of electricity ripped across the roiling dark. To those who were awake and staring up at the sky at the eruption, visible from towns even far from Taal, it was a once-in-a-generation light show, a terrifying display of fury and beauty. An American ex-soldier named J.D. Ward, who made a living ferrying tourists across the lake to the volcano, described it this way. A huge pillar of smoke, over a mile in diameter, stabbed up into the night. This broke and spread out as a giant rose might open, its stem containing mud, ashes, cinders, and huge masses of fire rock, which illuminated the country for leagues. It was a night Ward wrote that he would never forget, not even if he lived to be a thousand years old. But for many of the farmers, fishers, and other Filipinos living on the central island of Taal, this night of flowering ash and terrible lightning would be their last one on Earth. For 381 years, the islands of the Philippines were occupied by conquistadors, missionaries, merchants, soldiers, spies, and colonizers of every stripe. That's 381 years of history, and we're here to talk about the stories lost in between the cracks of the centuries. This is Occupy Pilipinas Episode 9, A Night of Ash and Lightning. Underneath our feet, Far below the soil and stone that make up the motherland is the tectonic violence of the Earth's crust, concentrated on one of the most geologically active locations on the planet. The islands of our archipelago, after all, are only the upturned splinters and cooling embers of vast underground forces. The collision of continent-sized plates of rock the fracturing of trenches in the deep surfaces of the earth, the great explosion of volcanoes. Even up to the present, more than 400 volcanoes remain active in the country, many of them swelling like blisters across the long line of the Luzon volcanic arc. Among the most dangerous is Taal Volcano, which has erupted at least 34 times since the coming of the Spaniards. It is also among the most beautiful. The first Westerner to set eyes on its breathtaking vista was most likely Juan de Salcedo, the grandson of Miguel López de Legazpi. From a narrow arm of the sea, 
he and a company of around 200 soldiers sailed into Lake Taal in 1570. It was no sightseeing tour. A hail of arrows suddenly appeared, one of which buried itself into Salcedo's leg. The Spanish-led troops rowed their boats to the shore and disembarked, and with the superior firepower of their guns, managed to kill 40 of their attackers. Later, they marched into a Moro town by the lake and freed two captured Chinese traders. Exactly 340 years later, another military man, 1st Lieutenant J.D. Ward of the Philippine Constabulary, found himself stationed near Taal Volcano. In a magazine article that was published in 1913 for the Mid-Pacific Magazine, he wrote, The volcano has always been considered the greatest scenic wonder of the Philippines and attracted many tourists who were forced to cross the lake in bangkas, bringing their own food, tents, etc. from Manila. An idea percolated inside Ward's head. He resigned his commission and poured his savings into a gasoline-powered boat and some tents. From a campsite on the shore of Lake Bombon, as Lake Taal was called at the time, he would pick up tourists who wanted to hike up Volcano Island. He offered day trips, but it was also possible to book him for overnight trips, where the tourists would sail across the lake, spend the night on the boat or in a rest house on the island, and climb the active craters at first light. The soldier was now a tour guide, and business, as he wrote in the article, was very, very good. Meanwhile, underneath the earth, Taal Volcano was stirring once again. Its restlessness became a major tourist draw. Ward wrote, There was always enough activity inside the crater to make it interesting. He would take people around the island's vents and craters. An amateur geologist went on one of his trips. Gazing out at the lake, he told Ward, it shows signs of terrible eruptions in days gone by, but it has reached the Solfatara stage, which is a sure sign of death in volcanoes. How wrong that amateur geologist was! On Friday, January 27, 1911, the seismographs in the Manila Observatory began recording frequent earthquakes, their styluses catching furiously across the long rolls of carbon paper. The first earthquake, logged at intensity 3, came at 11 o'clock that night, but before midnight, struck four more additional tremors. At 2.20 a.m., a Dutch visitor staying at a hotel in Intramuros, Gerrit Peter Ruwaffer, felt an earthquake that was like a heavy cannon blast, as he wrote in his diary. It was also on January 27 that a great cloud of steam rolled up from the earth and covered Volcano Island. The following day, the volcano began throwing up clouds of ash and soot, the ground trembling with every new outburst. Cracks opened up in the ground 
in the towns of Lemery and Talisay. Some awful catastrophe was feared to be imminent, wrote Reverend Miguel Sadera Maso, who was in charge of the seismological station at the Manila Observatory. Charles Martin, a photographer for the Philippine government and its Bureau of Science, rushed to Volcano Island. There, his shoes making depressions against the ashfall coating the earth. He saw steam, mud, and ash pouring out from the vents that scarred the surface. Martin took so many photos that his store of plate negatives gave out, and he left Volcano Island to get new stock. Reverend Maso reckoned that this ended up saving the photographer's life. While the Filipinos feared for their lives, American tourists packed J.D. Ward's boat, eager to play act as adventurers. He wrote, I was kept very busy on both the 28th and the 29th, transporting parties back and forth across the lake, landing them near a small rest house on the volcano, situated about four feet above the level of the lake. But as he made these trips across Lake Bombon, he noticed the water inching nearer and nearer to the house. He then realized that the water wasn't rising, but that the island was sinking. And with the realization of that fact, he wrote, My hair stood on end. It was Sunday night, January 29, 1911. Waiting on the campsite across Taal Lake was one last group of tourists, the Sullivans, who were very angry that J.D. Ward would not take them for an overnight trip to the volcano. Ward had transported four groups of tourists across the lake that day, but he would take no more, no matter how angry Mr. Sullivan got. Ward struck a compromise. They would sleep in the lakeside campsite and if nothing would happen in the night, he would take the Sullivans out to Volcano Island first thing in the morning. At 11 p.m., the storm awakened inside the sky-piercing column of ash. With the lightning and the smoke, descriptions of the air above Taal turned apocalyptic. Walter E. Pratt, writing in the Philippine Journal of Science, said, some people saw incandescent bodies rising out of the crater and falling in graceful curves to the earth. Meanwhile, Reverend Maso wrote of an immense, threatening black cloud crossed by brilliant flashes of lightning and illumined by local explosions resembling globular lightning. And then, the eruption. Some snapshots from that world-ending dawn. A man and his son were sleeping in their shack when they were awakened by the violent explosion. Stepping out to open the door, the son was instantly killed as a wave of scalding mud descended on the house. The father survived by hiding in a corner, but not until every inch of his body was horribly burned. Another survivor, living at the edge of Volcano Island, saw mudfall pouring through his palm leaf roof. 
To escape the eruption, he ran to the lake and dove down into the water. Across the lake, a former sergeant in the Spanish army shepherded as many people as he could to the Bayuyungan River and told them to plunge into the water as protection against the scalding ashfall. Also across the lake, but on the northeast side, J.D. Ward and his wife had already retreated to higher ground right before the eruption. When it happened, he wrote, The heart of the mountain volleyed out in the air. We thought the world was coming to an end. There was a terrible sound, and then the wild rush of the lake as the force of the explosion drove the water forward. For one moment, they were transfixed, their eyes riveted to the display of lightning. And then the ash came down, and they came to their senses, fleeing up the ridge to the road leading up to Tanawan, Batangas. They were quickly overtaken by Filipinos, some of them aboard carabaos and horses, barreling through the roads as they fled the volcano, the way lit up by the lightning that raged on even after the eruption. About 70 million cubic meters of earth were thrown into the air by Ta'al. The official death toll came to 1,335, though only 732 bodies were found. Reverend Maso wrote that the eruption likely killed every living creature within 5 to 6 kilometers to the east and more than 15 kilometers to the west. In his report, he said, Many were killed in the act of fleeing. Others were found buried underneath or among the debris of their huts, which had been brought down upon them and torn to pieces. Some of them seemed to have been killed by instantaneous asphyxiation, as they were found on their mats in the attitude of peaceful sleep. Lieutenant William C. Farr of the Philippine Constabulary was stationed in Indang, Cavite, but was on an inspection tour in Carmona at the time of the eruption. Immediately after, he instructed 11 of his men to head straight to Talisay on the north side of Taal Lake with all the medical supplies they could carry, a recurring bout of malarial fever, and the threat of a so-called outlaw band forced far to stay near his station. There, he was reprimanded by a senior officer for sending a detachment of troops into Taal without proper authorization. It was only three weeks later, on February 3, that Far was authorized to take a patrol up to Mendez, Cavite, around 15 kilometers northwest of the volcano. 400 refugees had streamed into the town from the stricken regions of Taal, and for three weeks, these people had gone without first aid. Among them was the ex-Spanish soldier who had saved the townspeople in Bayuyungan. He told Far that after the eruption, a heavy explosive gas had come down from the crater, killing more people. He had taken as many as he could and led them in a perilous hike up Tagaytay Ridge to Mendez, a climb, Far noted, of over 2,000 feet on a steep trail. Far's men did what they could to treat the burns and other injuries, while the lieutenant took charge 
of finding boats to transport the refugees to Naik. But then the senior inspector arrived, the same officer who had gotten angry at Far for sending aid without waiting for orders, and told him to stop the evacuation. Why? Far asked. A telegram had come in from Manila. According to the senior inspector of Batangas, Cavitenos were streaming into the province, robbing the dead. Far's superior officer said that the Cavite Constabulary would need to investigate. Far argued with the senior inspector. Wouldn't it be more logical to think that these so-called grave robbers were actually the refugees who had returned to search for the bodies of their relatives? Wouldn't it make sense that these people, not even a decade removed from the Philippine-American War, would flee at the sight of constabulary patrols? But the senior inspector would not budge. At the moment when they were right there to assist the refugees, the constabulary's manpower was diverted to investigate these reports. It was only after several days that the injured were finally loaded into the boats and transported out of Mendez. Far, the senior inspector, and a detachment of troops pushed on to Tagaytay Ridge. In reminiscences he published as a magazine article 27 years after the disaster, Far described what he saw almost a month after the eruption. What a scene of desolation greeted our eyes. Gone was the beautiful valley with its blue lake. Gone was the gorgeous foliage and the peaceful villages amid the trees. Gone were the green slopes of Volcano Island in the center of the lake and the many colored clouds usually hovering over the crater. Instead, everything was a dirty gray. The water in the lake had a dirty color. The villages had disappeared. Even after three months, Refugees still needed to be transported out of the lakeside town surrounding Ta'al. The Red Cross, desperate for boats, decided to book the services of J.D. Ward, the soldier-turned-tour guide who survived the eruption and went straight back to running his business. He seemed to have done well for himself since the eruption. When he started out his business, he had invested his capital on his motorboat and tents. In April, he is listed as the owner of a small hotel in Tanawan called Volcano Hotel. He is also apparently able to commandeer a fleet of bangka. J.D. Ward charged the Red Cross 2,500 pesos to use his boats to transport the sick and wounded. That may not sound like much now, but let's do some calculations. The Philippine Coinage Act of 1903 established an exchange rate of 2 Philippine pesos to 1 American dollar, which meant that 2,500 pesos was $1,250. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics has an inflation currency calculator which goes all the way back to 1913. That's two years after the Ta'al eruption, but it will have to do. Adjusting for inflation, $1,250 in 1913 
is worth about $33,224 now. J.D. Ward was asking the Red Cross for the equivalent of around 1.6 million pesos in today's money. It was a fee that the La Vanguardia, a Spanish-language newspaper at the time, called Stupendous. But it seemed the Red Cross had no choice. It booked Ward's boats. But even then, the evacuation seemed haphazard. Lieutenant William C. Farr wrote that he saw Red Cross officials dashing aimlessly around the lake. At one time, the military could not even load refugees inside the boat because there was a bunch of American women aboard. Ward had seemingly turned the devastation of Ta'al into an opportunity for some disaster tourism. Among these tourists was Garrett Peter Rowaffer, the Dutch visitor to Manila who had written about the January 28 cannon shot earthquake in his diary. In early April, he booked a tour with Ward. With him was a mining engineer and a future professor of geology at the soon-to-be-built University of the Philippines. The three of them boarded J.D. Ward's boat and took a day trip to Volcano Island. They were there to conduct a research investigation. But as Rowaffer Riley noted in his diary, his companions were hardly giving the impression that they are intent on doing scientific research. How much did Ward charge these passengers? 20 pesos per head, or almost 13,000 pesos in today's money. In any case, the Red Cross's efforts seemed to be for naught. In his article, Lieutenant Farr even accused the Red Cross of doing next to nothing. In the section where I was at work, no supplies of any nature were sent in by the Red Cross, he wrote. While the International Aid Agency got all the praise said far, it was actually the Filipino enlisted men of the constabulary who rose to the occasion and bravely came to the aid of their countrymen. Filipino volunteers also poured in from neighboring provinces, wearing black armbands in solidarity. The stories of Lieutenant Farr and ex-Lieutenant Ward show the fumbling attempts of the U.S. colonial government at disaster relief. But an editorial written in the nationalist newspaper El Ideal argued that the Americans in charge, faced for the first time with a wide-scale national disaster, never really cared. The editors wrote, The dead and wounded are only Filipinos. If the tragedy had occurred elsewhere in the United States and the government had shown the same attitude, the roar of indignation of the people would have made the White House tremble on its foundations. Lieutenant Farr, who had sent a detachment of his men as a frontline response to the Ta'al eruption, wrote about his own good intentions. But he soon collided with a military command that was more concerned with keeping an eye on the peace and order situation than in providing aid to refugees. It seemed that the colonial administration too had other things on their mind. At the time of the eruption, the two highest officials of the land, Governor General W. Cameron Forbes 
and Interior Secretary Dean Conan Worcester were vacationing in the brand new, chilly American playground of Baguio City. It took days for news of the eruption to reach them. Even worse, when the Philippine Assembly proposed to earmark 100,000 pesos for disaster relief, the Philippine Commission vetoed the resolution. More than 1,300 dead was apparently not worth 100,000 pesos. Two years after the eruption, in his article for the Mid-Pacific Magazine, J.D. Ward described the al as something like a ferocious, wild zoo animal. He called it untamed, incorrigible, and a terrible monster unworthy of the trust of humankind. Ta'al is none of these things. It is a volcano, one whose threat is very, very real to the millions of people who now live around it. For now, it sleeps. When it awakes in the near or distant future, and make no mistake, there will be a next eruption. Will we have taken to heart the lessons we learned in 1911 and in every disaster thereafter? This podcast was written, created, and recorded by Leo Mangubat for Summit Books and produced by Kyla Diaz and Mark Delgado. For this episode on the 1911 Ta'al eruption, my primary sources were the magazine articles written by J.D. Ward, published in 1913 in the Mid-Pacific Magazine, and by William C. Farr, published in 1938 in the Philippine Magazine. Details on the eruption were drawn from the reports of Reverend Miguel Sadera Maso for the Philippine Weather Bureau and of Walter E. Pratt for the Philippine Journal of Science. More details on J.D. Ward can be found in Garrett Peter Roaffer's diary, compiled into the 2016 book Colonial Manila by Otto Vanden Moisenberg. An excellent synthesis of events and the phenomenon of disaster nationalism is provided by Dr. Theresa Ventura's paper, Lessons from 1911, Ta'al Volcano, American Colonialism, and Philippine Disaster Nationalism, published in the Journal of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. A few details have been embellished for dramatic purposes.